Hello and welcome to Happy Place, the podcast that helps us discover new paths to happiness by hearing where others have been. I'm Fern Cotton and today I'm meeting New York Times best-selling author Jedediah Jenkins. A professor of mine in college said this quote to me which I think about all the time, which is a system is perfectly designed to produce what it is now producing. What he means by that is things ain't going to change if nothing changes. Like it's producing what it's now producing. Things aren't just going to happen. Like it's designed to so if you don't change it up, then how can you expect a different result? Jedediah has actively taken control of and changed his life in just the most awe-inspiring way. Over a number of years he's gone on emotional and physical journeys around the world making discoveries about ego, friendship and even the soul. And it's no exaggeration when I say I am in awe of this man. I cannot tell you how excited I was to speak to him. I mean, I don't need to tell you because you'll hear it for yourself because I'm such a massive fan of Jedediah and his writing. I was sort of insanely giddy. And at times when listening back to this edit, I was like what was going on here? Like, I was just overtly excited. I should have reined it in a little bit, maybe. But, you know, perhaps the excitement will be infectious. That's my hope anyway. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Here it is then. This is the show. Well, where do I even start? I mean, first of all, I'm such a fan, so I'll just get that out of the way. <laughs> and I mean, I DM'd you ages ago with that. You didn't know who the hell I was. And I'm like, this is so odd that I'm doing this. But I was so desperate for you to come on the podcast. So I'm so glad that it's just all naturally occurred. Oh, it's such an honor. And I like even just hearing your accent, my favorite. I mean, I guess I have an accent to you. But my <laughs> favorite thing in the world is coming to the UK and visiting London and Normally I go several times a year some of my best friends live there and I just can't wait for this to be over so I can come like I know have a pint with you and laugh please please that we have to make that happen when all this craziness is over you've you've got to come over um I think your first book is the book that I've gifted to people the most wow yeah because it's just so gorgeous and there's just something, well, I mean, obviously, you're, it's just such a special book. Your first book to shake the sleeping self. But, you know, just how you write in general is so beautiful. I just gifted it to my brother-in-law and he's reading it at the moment and absolutely loving it. <laughs> it's it's just a beautiful book. And so let's talk about that book. Um, so this is sort of your memoir piece that was set against, uh, what was it, a 14,000-mile bicycle ride. Is that correct? Yes. So you went from Oregon to Patagonia. Yes, from the state of Oregon down Latin America to the bottom of South America to uh, I, I finished in Chile. And this was when I turned 30 years old. And... It was that feeling of like, 
as you're in your like mid to late twenties and you kind of realize that youth isn't forever and that like you have to eventually really be an adult and be at the, and you, one would hope that you find your way into the, to the steering wheel and the driver's seat of your own life. And I had felt that I had just been kind of walking through the next door that was convenient or handed to me my whole life. The concept of 30 years old felt very much like an adult. And that scarcity of time made me really want to take control of my life and be the person that I wanted to be. And originally the book was, the idea of the book was very rooted in the idea of chasing the career that I wanted. And what's funny and, and so often that the deeper truth is like smuggled in with the more like projected, presented truth. And I was really looking for my completed identity as like a gay man raised Christian and like really finding my own spirituality and my own worldview on my own two feet, not just the one that was handed to me. And that was kind of like part of the gift of this like journey of taking myself out of my comfort zone and really seeing the world at such a slow pace and, and pushing myself to the limit. I don't know. It just, I really recommend people to go on major trips like that. It really has a profound effect on the psyche and on your own sense of identity. First of all, I'm so glad that you took us on the journey with you because that was such a, a gift in itself. But it's funny because that seminal moment of turning 30, you know, it's almost a cliche, but it's so true that you you start to have a concept of time because before that, a lot of people will go, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to do whatever I want. I am mm. indestructible. And then you get to 30 and go, because I'm a similar, I think I'm a year older than you, but you get to that age and you think, oh, this is where shit gets real. What have yeah. I done? What do I want to do? And I think a lot of people do make big life changes there. But yours was extreme in the sense that you set yourself this big challenge without really knowing where it was going to go. You know, there was no guarantee <laughs> that your blog would be then so popular and then that in turn oh, not at all. would manifest into this beautiful writing career. You know, that was just, what was it, intuition? You just had to do it? <sighs> it really was intuition. It was just... The call of the wild, it was... I like that, the call of the wild. It was just the belief that... Uh, there's a line in Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild, I believe, that she gets from her mother, which is, put yourself in the way of beauty. You don't always know where the beauty is, but get in front of it and maybe it'll find you. And I feel that way about life, about a sense of purpose, about finding yourself, is if you stay in the same habitual routines and you stay in the place that feels stuck and stagnant... Yeah, you're going to learn lessons, but not in the same way that you would if you remove yourself from that situation and put the mystery component parts of yourself in a new situation. You just see yourself differently from a different vantage point. A professor of mine in college said this quote to me, which I think about all the time, which is, a system is perfectly designed to produce what it is now producing. Yeah. What he means by that is, Things ain't going to change if nothing changes. Like it's producing what it's now producing. Things aren't just going to happen. Like it's designed. To so if you don't change it up, then how can you expect a different result? It's like the definition of madness, <laughs> isn't it? Like, you know, you want a different outcome, but you just keep doing the same thing. Yeah. But you hope something is going to be different at the other end. And it, of course it's not. Of course it's not. And But, you know, the majority of people will have an idea or that like gut feeling they want change. And they'll think about it and they'll like buy a bike. But you were just like, bye, I'm off. I'm doing it. Well, yeah. And that has a lot to do with like, I mean, I had certain like 
circumstances that lended themselves to it. I was single. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have a lot of debt. So like there are certain privileges that I had. I mean, you could say reaching 30 without kids or a, a spouse is a privilege. A lot, I mean, in the culture I was raised, that's failure. But right. it was a, the privileged ability to have the freedom to go. Yeah. But I knew I would chicken out. And so I had this idea when I was 27. I was like, oh, I need to go on a big adventure when I turn 30 to like remove the fear of that decade and to really take charge of it. And so I basically just announced to my whole community when I was 27, I was like, guys, I'm quitting my job at 30 and I'm going to bicycle to Patagonia because I wanted to insulate myself from chickening out from life circumstances. So, and I know that I, I am a people pleaser and I peer pressure really works on me. And so that's why I've never been able to have like a dry January where I don't drink the moment <laughs> someone's like, come on, let's just have like one cocktail. I'm like, okay, 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 okay. But like, I just need people to expect things of me. And so talking a big game about going on this big adventure and I'm going to write a book about it. And I'm going to chase my dream of being a writer. I kind of like built myself this infrastructure of expectation, which really helped push me into doing it through my fear. But this wasn't, you know, just you writing about, I mean, obviously you had the backdrop of this really tough physical and mental challenge that you were putting yourself through, you know, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone every day with the physical aspect and also like staying with strangers in their houses and just sort of, working out day to day what was going to be best for you to get to the end of the journey. But you were also, for the book and for the blog, processing, I guess, what your life meant up until that point. Because as you touched on before, you were a gay man growing up in a Christian household. You had an, an inner friction that that you were kind of working through. Do you think it was solely the writing that acted as a catharsis to sort of help you find peace with a lot of stuff you'd been troubled by? Okay, so I, I start my new book off with this quote, which is going to help answer the question that you just raised, which is... You mean this new book here? Oh, my God. I, You're so perfect. Never leave me. Okay, hold on. Let me... Re I want to get this quote right. It's from John Muir, and it says, When we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Oh, I know. And I, I mean, so what? what's funny and, and to answer is like, yes, I thought the bike trip would, I was being risky and brave and I'm going to try to be a writer and I don't want to live in fear of being a failure of writing. So I'm going to try it. And if I fail, I can always find another job, but at least I don't want to live with regrets and say I never tried. And that's what I thought I was pulling on the thread of the sweater. That's the thread I was pulling. Yeah. And then as I did that and I stepped into my own strength and my own bravery and my own courage, that thread kept pulling out, out, out. And all of a sudden I realized, whoa, I am the author of my own life, of my own life story. I have one and only life. And what am I telling with that story? And am I living in my authentic identity or am I trying to please my mother and the community in which I was raised? Or am I trying to be the person that I think the universe God made me to be. And maybe I feel like an exile, but what if exiles actually are pioneers and they're stepping into a new place? And what if I need to be that spiritual gay man that I always needed when I was in my 20s? These are things that like the trip and really the writing of the trip and trying to figure out what I was thinking about and what I was going through. I'm a double extrovert. So it's like when I speak, I think. And when I'm quiet... I don't think mm -hmm. I just like I just my brain is like foggy. And then when I find words, all of a sudden it makes sense to me and other people give me energy. So 
writing is a form of speaking. I'm speaking to myself, but also to an imagined reader. That's what's fun about writing for public consumption versus a journal is that when I write something, I also have to think, does this make sense to someone who isn't me? Am I conveying a personal truth in a way through language that someone who hasn't lived my exact life can understand? And that's why it's so amazing to have an editor and a team at the publisher because they are also a reader reading your words being like, I don't understand this transition or I don't know this, this metaphor doesn't click. But I think you do that so well naturally, not only because obviously there's a lot of thought behind it, but also because... There's a connectivity in your willingness, and, and I, I hope that in my work I, I'm doing the same. I certainly try to. There's a connectivity or connectedness in in you just being vulnerable mm. and talking about stuff that hurts and talking about stuff that was painful in the past or talking about things that trouble you. And it's not an easy thing to do. I think it, it maybe gets easier the more you do it. But have you found a comfort in being vulnerable in front of lots of people? Well, that took a long, long time. So yeah. what, the interesting, like, here's another thread that pulled out all the other threads. The interesting thing about growing up gay in the Christian South of the United States is it's a very weird type of internalized oppression because something that feels that is out of your control, that you didn't choose, but is also sort of invisible besides the tone of voice and a mannerism you can actually mimic and train yourself to hide something important to you and then live with the like hum of fear every day that someone's going to find out and so i think the reason why now my entire job is like radical vulnerability is because i lived so many formative years with utter terror around transparency around someone really knowing my inner thoughts of really knowing the true me and that rots your spirit it rots your soul and so as I moved to California and I started making friends who embraced me and loved me for who I was and and I would test the waters and sometimes a friend would make me feel very safe and I would tell them the truth about my sexuality and my confusions and my doubts about faith and all these things. And they wouldn't slam the door in my face. They would stay up with me all night and process it and love me in the morning. And slowly that like testing, walking out on the ice and not falling through and you just keep making baby steps. And all of a sudden I found myself surrounded by an incredible community of supportive, beautiful friends who love me for who I am. And I looked behind me and the people that had judged me or that I feared rejection from were further and further in the distance and on the horizon. And then I felt safe. I felt that I could be myself and be more and more of myself every day and not experience the rejection that had completely controlled me my whole childhood. And and the final boss in that video game is my mother. And she is one of my best friends and the greatest person on the planet, but she's been the ultimate because she, I mean, as many as maybe most humans are, the final boss is your mother or father or both. And, and what's interesting is a lot of the time, maybe, maybe most, maybe 50, 50, me testing my vulnerability and finding it safe was one piece of the puzzle. And then also other people being vulnerable with me and me being a safe place for them and realizing how their vulnerability inspired mine. We used to always say this in my friend group, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. You bear your chest, someone else will bear theirs. 
more often than not. Oh, it happens all the time. Like I'm sure you have countless stories, you know, told to you from strangers because they feel safe doing so because you've done the same, and it's a very beautiful thing. And I really love this whole thread analogy because. I think, you know, once you start pulling at stuff and if you're up for a bit of self-inventory and you like digging around in your life, I absolutely love doing it, even though it causes me utter pain sometimes. I, I like doing it. You realise that it all leads back to, you know, one big fear or one big relationship with someone big in your life that, that causes those feelings. Like most things connect. And it's like when you first read that quote, I was like, God, it's humbling every time you understand that because... We think we've got all these little nuanced moments and problems in our day mm. and we spend so much time worrying about them and whatever. And it, it just leads back to that that thing. And, you know, you've talked about that there. Your fear being, you know, the ultimate rejection, you know, ceasing to exist because you're an extrovert and other people would reject you. I mean, mm. that's a huge fear to carry. And there's such liberation in finding that space where you're just you and it doesn't happen. And I've experienced, you know, it on, on so many levels with talking about my own mental health and illness in the past. And again, not being rejected. And, and then you say mm. that, you know, like you say, you can then convey that to other people. And there's that connection with other people also mm. feeling they can do the same. It's a beautiful cycle. Beautiful. Well, and as you found in your work that once you have moved from fear to power then it's your duty and privilege to then give the fearful your power. Yeah. To, to be vulnerable, to share your journey and your strength and your acceptance with them so that they can feel less alone. I mean, the reason, the true reason I wrote To Shake the Sleeping Self was I needed that book when I was 22 years yeah. old. And it and I couldn't find it. I needed, and, and it's funny, like the book is kind of, Yes, it's an adventure story. Yes, it's like a coming of age, self-expression, all of these. I mean, it, it's any true story is a thread of the universe that could go in any direction. That's why different people identify with books differently. But I wrote the book trying to trick my 22-year-old self because when I was that age, I was still very in love with the Lord and Jesus was my everything. And I was very trained by the church to fear certain types of language. Like if, if someone just came out and said like, you can't trust scripture. Like it was written by man. Like God is too restrictive of a term. You should use the term universe. Like all these things. I was trained to be like, Oh, that person is cuckoo. Don't listen to them. They're deceived. And so I wanted to like ease a reader. Like, and I know this cause I've gotten these emails that like make me cry People will read my book and they think they're reading a book about just a guy about turning 30 and the fear of like life slipping through your fingers and going on an adventure. And then around page 100, all of a sudden they, they see this little gay boy in the South. And then all of a sudden it's about faith. And it, and I've had some reviewers be like, I was tricked. This book is about faith and I don't want to read about that <laughs> trash and like or whatever. And and I'm like, sorry, I didn't write it for you. Like I. Yeah. And, and many people who don't have any relationship to faith at all still connect with the book because it is about just worldview and, and finding your own worldview when you were handed one, a different one growing up, which is pretty much everybody. But but I just really wanted him to feel safe and to feel like he's allowed to ask those questions and just getting those emails. And it's amazing because it hasn't just been from little gay boys in the South. It's been from women raised um, Hasidic Jewish 
and they feel like the faith, like they feel like they can't be themselves because their family will reject them. Like, it's so interesting to see people that I didn't even realize would identify completely with my story, like find it to be their story, just painted different colors. Yeah, because of your vulnerability. And, you know, we assume that pain is like the pain we feel in our life about certain things is going to ostracize us and alienate us but pain is the thing that connects us yeah like all those letters prove it mm. like all those letters prove it pain is the thing that connects us and, and you say something brilliant in your new book like streams to the ocean that look at that pain and that's probably where you'll find your passion do you think that's always the case I don't know if it's always the case, but I keep seeing it over and over and over again. It's like the Mm. pattern recognition software in my brain keeps going ping, ping, ping. Like everyone who is passionate about anything, you see somebody who is like they spend all their time working in a, you know, a multiple sclerosis fundraising event. It's like newsflash. Their dad had MS like they didn't just randomly pick it. It's their story. And that's what animates their passion. And. I mean, my my best friend, Lauren, she started an organization called Kind Campaign, which travels the country. Now she does it virtually, but she's so excited to get back inside middle schools and high schools with girls. And it's about girl on girl abuse and bullying. And, and like she was bullied to the point of suicidal thoughts in middle school. And she was like, people don't talk about this enough about the way girls specifically treat each other. So she goes and she made a documentary and they do these amazing, like, what are they called? Like kindness cards. And girls will write, like, if you've ever felt like you said something mean to someone, apologize on stage. And the girls get up there and read these cards and they're like 13, 12 years old and they're sobbing. Like the meanest girl in school is sobbing to the like sad, quiet girl because of the way she treated her. And like that conversation would have never happened because of awkwardness, because of whatever. And all this beautiful life change is happening because of pain. My friend Lauren was abused. Yeah, yeah, this is it. I mean, I love, I just think it's a brilliant equation. It totally works. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, I want to dig into your new book some more because you've broken it down into all these brilliant subjects, whether it's family, ego, the soul, home... And your reason for picking those subjects is because you believe that these are the subjects that we should really be talking about with the people that are important to us. My take on it is the rest of it is just a distraction. But we so seldom do. Like if you think, you know, not you, because you're used to doing this and you've got these great, you know, connections with people (laughs) and you get to the meat of it. But on an everyday basis, say I bump into a a mum on the school run or say I see a friend in a local coffee shop you do the hellos, how are you? You do the weather. You talk about mm-hmm. a celebrity who's just done something ridiculous. And <laughs> then you bitch about someone you know. Then you touch on politics. But you don't, unless you're, I don't know, drunk or you've had something <laughs> really, you know, big happen with a friend or a loved one, then you get into it. Then you go beneath the layers and you talk about these 
fundamental pillars of life, but we just don't seem to do it unless there's like a big catalyst. Well, uh, yes, but uh, I mean, the uh, the flip side of that is if I'm just in the coffee shop on my way to a meeting and I bump into my friend and they say, well, I'm really depressed and I'm thinking about getting a divorce and I'm like, oh God, well, I have a meeting, so <laughs> call me later. <laughs> Bad so, timing. Yeah. so there is there is like context matters. I don't think we should all be having yeah, like yeah, yeah. the deepest conversation at every moment. But I feel like people, I think because they fear their own pain and they fear answers to certain questions, they they actually avoid thinking about very important things and fill their life with bright, shiny distraction or fill their life with other drama. Yeah. So like if you have deep pain about your family, about your relationship with your parents, your siblings, your spouse, whatever it is, maybe you don't want to talk about that. So you just stir up some bullshit over here all damn day, or you just talk about celebrities or you just talk about whatever it is. And I'm like, until you really invest in yourself and healing the foundation of your house, you can't expect the house to be functioning well. I think about another analogy to the sweater pull. My brain is so helped by analogy. I love an analogy. Go for it. Well, to me, it's like the foundation of a house is like everything, no matter how Victorian, beautiful, castle-like the house is, if the house is on bad foundations, or if you don't understand the foundation, you can't understand the rest of the house. And I think about this with the example of my mother. So... My mother is the most amazing person, the funniest, the best. And yet she believes that the Bible is the infallible word of God and that homosexuality is a sin and is a deadly sin and and is a bad lifestyle choice. And that like on the surface, we like, like we fight because I deeply disagree with her. And yet because I did the work, First of all, because I removed myself and found my own community of safety and support and felt strong on my own, that gave me the strength to then see her clearly and then go deep into the foundation and realize my mother came from extreme poverty and she was basically mistreated by her family and she's had three husbands cheat on her or like abuse her and leave her, cheat on her, whatever it was. And her life has fallen apart numerous times. And the only thing that helped her was God was the belief that God has a plan. I remember now I'm 38. I have mom friends that when the kids go to sleep, the moms drink wine and laugh with, I go over to the house and we're having a blast. And I'm like, I didn't know mothers had this fun. And I remember thinking, Oh my gosh, was my mom like having wine with friends when we went to bed? I never thought of that, that my mom is a person. So I asked her and she said, You know, whenever I would finally get a minute's rest, I was a single mom. So I would draw a bath and I would sit in the bath by myself and I would read the Bible. And I was like, that's it. Where's your glass of wine? You just read the Bible. (laughs) And it just made me realize that her belief in the Bible and God's will over her life is so foundational to her sanity, to her entire, the structure of her life. And I'm a kid born in 1982 as I'm like two, three years old and I want to play with a Barbie or I like am a little swishy here or there, she's hearing in the news that there is a gay cancer that's killing gay men and it's called AIDS. 
And then she's going to church and hearing pastors say that. And she's now afraid for my son. She's going through a divorce from my dad. She's hearing that homosexuality is caused by divorce. Like she's fearing for my safety. And then I grow up and I become like this fast talking, fun guy. And I'm like, you know what, mom? I think the Bible is all made up and I don't think it's real. You know, like you can imagine how the foundation of her house is. I, I'm about to pull the foundation out from under yeah. her and crash that whole fucking house. Can you get into this with your mum now? Like, where, how did you find the peace to have your own belief systems, your methodologies, the way that you like to see the world, but but be that close? Well, it's a good question. I mean, truly, it came from moving away and finding my own life, like finding my own strength to stand on my own and understand. Because there were there was a season in my twenties, knowing that I was gay and knowing that if I had a boyfriend or this and that, like my whole family and my whole community back at home might reject me completely and finding the peace in myself being like, okay, that may happen. And if that happens, I'd rather be myself than have a community and be a lie. You know, I, I, I was like, I had gone through that scenario in my mind and prepped myself for it. Yeah. And so in a way that was sort of testing. And then I just, and by the way, I have a mother who is so loving, but she also part of the foundation of her belief is God is in control, not me. She's like, I believe these things, but God is bigger than me. And God is the author of your life as much as mine. So if you believe that to be true, I'm going to tell you that I don't agree, but I'm still going to love you. And I'm still going to be in relationship with you because I don't know everything. And that is a key to her specialness because some very religious parents are not like that. They're like, no, yeah. no, I know exactly how it is. And I have to reject you from my life. And by the way, my mom is hilarious. And so like we have the like comedy and levity. We can get in the most intense philosophical, religious, political debates and someone will lob a joke in there and it just like diffuses and allows <laughs> us to go, you know, 20 more minutes yeah. and then you lob another yeah. joke. And I think I'm, I mean, humor is just such, it's medicine it's and, and it's profound and some families are humorless and I don't know what to do about that, but. No, I know. It's a shame because it, like you say, it, it breaks, it breaks the tension or it just changes the energy entirely to a conversation or a situation. It just breaks it. Like, this is ridiculous. I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but <laughs> we, were on a, we were on a family walk the other day with my parents and my dad, who is 67. He's a total legend. He was trying to impress my kids and he decided, and we were having just a very average walk. There was, we weren't even talking about anything really, but he decided to climb a tree and <laughs> And then he got stuck at the top of the tree and he tried to grab this really fragile twig that was hanging down to sort of Tarzan down. But he slid down the mossy tree and <laughs> rolled into a lake. And we were just like, what the fuck is happening? And I was crying. And I'd been having a really like tired average day. And I was literally, I lost my shit. It's like I'd had two hours of therapy. I came out like... The world is amazing because my dad's just done this ridiculous thing. Laughter is the best. It's the, me it's the medicine. It's so well. And I think if you can make someone laugh, it reminds you that you're that you're on the same team. You know, like you might be politically opposed. But like, listen, if my if I believed my mom was like trying to murder gay people, I would be like, we're not on the same team. But I know <laughs> yeah, that she is actually 
pure love. She just, yeah. the foundation of her worldview is different than mine. And so like rejection and hatred and pushing her away, I don't think is helpful for a family relationship or for a national conversation. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, to do all of this and to write a book, well, like both books, but to write this book like Streams to the Ocean, you've got to be, I think, very comfortable in digging around in all aspects of life because you're writing about it from a beautiful observational place. So you need to have, you know, had life experiences, which you certainly have, but also dig around in them to sort of excavate your own life to then really get to the bottom of things. I wonder... During that process of like self-inventory and looking at yourself, how important do you think it is to know who you are? I think I think that question can be somewhat fraught because I think hu- human identity is ever evolving. And so there it's like know who you are but hold it with an open hand because yeah, you change. I mean, at age 20, I was on USC's campus, my university, walking up to people, minding their own business, playing guitar in the park, preaching the gospel to them, telling them, you're going to burn in hell, like, listen up. And I mean, <laughs> and so if that 20-year-old hung out with me right now, he would be very stressed, okay? <laughs> and and so I'm just saying, like, that 20-year-old was definitely me, but he was on a journey, and I'm on one now, too. But I do think there is a cosmic, energetic, beating heart of someone's identity that is more them than the layers of armor that they put on to pretend to be someone else. There is a truer and a less true hum of your life. And moving perpetually towards the truer is the only way you can really thrive, is the only way that you can wake up and be like, yeah, this... Because what we do know is we can wake up and feel like an imposter, feel like this is not my life. I am living some other life. And whose fault is it? I'm not sure, but I feel trapped. Or you can feel, wow, this may be hard and it's hard to be real and it's hard to be honest and it's hard to live an authentic life, but this is my life and I'm living yeah. it. And that to me is the only true option. And I just have, for me, I have to live like that. Well, I think it's absolutely right because often I think we mistake knowing who you are to be confidence but I think confidence is being okay with not knowing who you are mm-hmm. yes because you know you talk about in in the new book there's a, a, a really brilliant moment about contentment mm. and your take on contentment which would be widely accepted is that contentment is accepting whatever life throws your way and then you challenge this concept because you say right well does that make discontentment bad because of course there are moments where life chucks something at you and you think no actually I don't want that I'm going to make a change Mm. so are you at a place now where you know when to accept life or push it you're so good at asking questions You know, I am not there yet because, and I don't know if I'll ever get there. (sighs) Okay, here comes the sweater thread. Yeah, let's do it. And it all goes, I mean, listen, I mean, one of the key things is when you know yourself and, and on the pursuit of knowing yourself, you begin to find root causes. You begin to find the, the cinder blocks that built your house. And then you can explain things that you do now. You're like, oh, well, there it is. And I, think that when I was a kid and I realized that I was gay 
that caused me to be a, it caused me to disembody. So I realized my body was getting me in trouble. I'm attracted to boys and that's bad. And I'm on the soccer team, on the cross country. I'm in the locker room with these people. My life is over if I get a boner. That's the title of my next book. But like, <laughs> Please! <laughs> and so, like, what I, I basically became a, a disembodied soul. My body was now something that I observed from 30,000 feet away, and I was not a body. I was a mind. That was a defense mechanism. And so... Ultimately, that turned me into a writer. I became an observer of life. Everything is interesting. I'm not personally offended because if someone's mean to me, they're mean to my body. But I'm watching up here and I'm thinking, huh, why did they say that? What is their insecurity? What are they going through? Like, I became this, like, floating spirit. And, you know, I love myself. That That's made me insatiably curious. It's made me hate no one. It's made me seek understanding of everything. But at the same time, there are times in my life, let's say I've had a boyfriend or I've been dating someone and they're mistreating me or they're, I ask for something and they're not giving it to me or, or whatever. I feel my body feels offended. And yet my observer is saying like, oh, interesting. They're bad at communication. I wonder what that means about their childhood. And so the observer in me has actually caused me to have difficulty standing up for my needs because I immediately explain everything away. Like everything has a reason. Nothing is anyone's fault. Whereas sometimes anger and speaking your needs and, and actually allowing yourself to have needs is a very important boundary is a very important sense of self. Mm. And that's a journey I'm on it. And I have been on in my thirties is allowing myself to have needs yeah, God, I'm so the same. It's actually unbelievable. I um, I mean, I wrote a whole book about this subject matter called Speak Your Truth because I just realised that I was looking at those threads again and leading back to those mm-hmm. big fears or whatever. I'm awful at saying that. And I think I've, I think I've had an element of that for very different reasons and to a lesser degree perhaps, but I've definitely had that. I'm out of my body now. I'm observing it. Because I think I felt so uncomfortable in so many moments that I was meant to feel okay in, in my job. You know, I've been mm. doing this job for so long and I'm meant to feel really comfortable doing all of it. And I've, I don't bother doing the stuff I'm not comfortable with now, but for years I did. And again, I think a coping mechanism is to disembody and to float around over here because either it's too too uncomfortable or at times, you know, more so I guess um, at a certain period of my life, it was too painful to be... Mm. You and I think it the great thing is though, and why you're able to write about it, is you've got awareness. There's something one of your friends talks about in the book that I've become obsessed with, and that is your friend Carolyn, who likes to ask successful people Oh, this is gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Tell me about the shadow. Can you explain to us what Carolyn means and what she's after? Okay, so Carolyn's real name is Rebecca, but my sister's name is Rebecca, so I had to, I didn't want to confuse the reader, so (laughs) I just want to give Rebecca her due. Her name is Rebecca Paul. Rebecca's amazing. She's this genius. Yes. And so she is a singer songwriter, and she like had this dream of putting out a record, and now she's put out several, and like it's so interesting. She's like achieved this dream that she worked so hard for. And then there were so many difficult things on the other side of it. And it, the difficult things seemed to surprise her. And so she was like, oh, when you arrive at the thing, 
And then you arrive at the thing and everyone's so excited for you. And then you're not, you don't feel like you're allowed to say, oh, this also came with some bullshit. But like the point of like reaching for the pinnacle thing is like, you have to believe that it's pure and perfect almost to like give you the stamina to fight, to climb the mountain. You have to believe the mountain peak is all that everyone said it was. But I, I love that idea because especially if you talk to and hang around with successful people, they feel very sincere, real, subjective, pain, confusion, um, loneliness, and they do not feel safe often to say these things. And because it can make yeah. them sound ungrateful or like yes. they didn't do it right or whatever it is. And it's like, no, no, no. The, the truth of the universe is the universe demands balance. Everything has a yin and a yang. Everything has a shadow. And the bigger the mountain, the longer the shadow it casts. Well, exactly. And I, I actually think it's a relief for many people to hear because, you know, we can we all get into that awful compare and despair model in the modern world because we've got social media and we can see what everyone's Mm. doing and we make huge assumptions and we go, oh my God, look at Dua Lipa at the Grammys. (laughs) I'm in a dirty tracksuit covered in hummus and I feel like shit and she's like winning at life. And there's so many layers. I don't know what's going on in her life. She might look amazing and is doing this sexy dance routine whereas I'm sat in my pyjamas, but she could be having all sorts of stuff going on. So, well, let me turn it on you. So you're an incredibly successful, much-loved writer with your books in the New York Times bestselling lists. Tell me about The Shadow. The Shadow, well, first of all, I'm an Enneagram 7 and a true optimist, so I, I like, don't dwell on The Shadow. I truly run from The Shadow, which is part of my personality. Um, so, A, I'll repeat that you are such a good question asker because I hate this question. And <laughs> um, B, I would say, when your life is, is for public consumption to some degree... I mean, just like the fact that strangers know my life and know who I am. Yeah. That I already feel like people are watching me live. And so when I like, you know, I've, I want to have a husband someday and maybe I want to have a family. And I feel like people look to me for advice and wisdom on how to live. And I'm going to like deeply screw up. And I don't even know what I'm attracted to. And I don't, and I feel so old to not know what I'm attracted to. And I feel like I'm so behind And yet at the same time, I feel so young and fresh because I didn't start romance until I was 30 years old. So there's this like tension of feeling late and then feeling like a baby and then feeling like, what does it all mean? And what am I supposed to do? And so I feel like I have more pressure on me to figure out life where some people can just not know. (laughs) Yeah, the shadow is the expectation that people will have of you. I totally get that. I'm an Enneagram 2, by the way, mm. which I was surprised about. I didn't think I was going to turn out a 2. It's fascinating stuff. Anybody that's listening that hasn't Are done it. Are you a 2 wing 3? I'm a 2, and then I had a draw of four numbers after that that were 3 and yeah. 7 and something else. Um, it's fascinating. Anyone listening who hasn't looked into it, just Google it. It's, it's, and you can do the test. It's like £12 or something. It's brilliant. The reason, I'll say the reason that I love the Enneagram, because it very much ties into this conversation, if you really get deep into it your number so there's nine numbers the seven is the enthusiast um, or the adventurer and one of the key elements of the Enneagram is it shows that your personality is predominantly built on top of a root fear like everyone has a root fear like I think the two's worst fear is not being needed yeah (laughs) and 
are being useless. Yeah. And a seven's worst fear is pain. And so it's very difficult. And it's what's so amazing about learning what your root fear is, is that then you can really start to work on it. And I realized if one of my friends is in severe pain, if they've had a miscarriage, if they've had something... My instinct is to immediately brighten them up. Up, oh, I'm making cocktails. We're not thinking about this. We're going dancing, girl. Like, let's go. We got to Whereas sometimes the best healing is you don't have to have an answer for them. They just want you to sit with them and sit in the pain, which is my worst yeah. nightmare. But that is where I need to grow. I need to be able to learn to sit in my own pain. I need to learn to mourn. And so anyway, it's just, it very much ties into this. It does, because not only can you figure out what that pain is, you can figure out, well, you'll know. You know what that pain is. And then you realise what's stopping you from connecting to that thing that is bigger than us, whether you mm. have a faith or not. I think we can all agree on there's something bigger than us. Unless you're a complete mm-hmm. and utter scientific, loving atheist who just thinks we're human and we're bumbling around. I certainly, I have deeply spiritual beliefs in mm. all sorts of things. But you can see... What's hindering you from having that connection? Mm. Yeah. Because without that fear, you're connected. You are love. You are you are fearless. You are liberated. You're able to be free, I guess. Mm. It's an amazing thing to understand. Um, let's talk about the soul. Now we're talking about spiritually <laughs> stuff because you've got a whole chapter on it. And it's I'm deeply fascinated in looking at the soul mm. because I think it's... I think it gets a bit left out of the picture. Like, we're so obsessed with like looking after our physical health Mm. and we're now more recently really in tune with looking at our mental health Mm. but what about that other bit Mm. like you don't have to call it the soul but what about that other bit like I feel like it just gets completely forgotten that the element of us that is perhaps everlasting that is connection to nature to other people to something bigger than us it just sort of gets pushed to one side a bit To me, like the point of the soul is that bigness is embracing that you are part of the bigness of the cosmic drama of whatever is whatever. To me, that is so inviting to use another analogy. If you're setting sail across the Atlantic and it takes six weeks to get to England from Boston or whatever, every day you're seasick, you're puking, whatever. The only way you could survive that trip is knowing knowing in some distant day you are arriving somewhere. It's this concept that you that like animates the humdrum day-to-day misery is this like concept you're holding in your mind of an imagined place that you're headed to. And to me like whether you believe your everlasting spirit is headed to a place or you just actually believe that okay, let's say you believe the universe is completely mechanical. There is no spirit to it at all. Well, to me, that is equally as amazing because if you're listening to this podcast right now, you are awake, you are conscious. And that means that the mathematical chaos of the universe, the atoms went bing, bong, bing, 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 and randomly organized into your mind. And now you are awake. You are the universe awake looking at itself. And now when you look up at the night sky and find that beautiful, you are the universe looking at itself and saying that is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, hello. That concept to me is soul. That is like, oh, I am something. I am part of something so huge. And I have every right to be here because I am here. I am it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's everything. It's absolutely everything. And, um, 
I don't want to kind of disney it, like make it all cartoony, <laughs> but for me, it's like the magic. It's the magic of being mm. alive. It's the magic moments and it's the goosebumps and it's the weird coincidences or the signs or, you know, without that, I think I'd feel really shit all the time. <laughs> well, and I think people who lose that sense of awe and wonder and that sense of soul do. Yeah. Or they medicate through just like chasing one party after the next and they are very I mean there's a certain presence to that but like I think without the combination of presence in the day and cosmic perspective like it's the dance of those two things it's the inhale and the exhale that like makes life life and if you yeah. really only do one like because I know people who are so cosmically exhaled you can't ask them what they want for lunch I'm like can you put the crystals <laughs> down and like talk to they've me they've got to about- do a tarot reading to work out which sandwich they're going to have <laughs> yeah it's like you got to have the balance <laughs> I love that I love that so much Oh, God, Jedediah, I just adore everything that you're doing. And I'm so glad that we've been able to do this today. It's been an absolute treat for me. Thank you. I had the time of my life. If you ever want me, I'm here. This was so fun. You are it, Jedediah. My God, I'm so in love with Jedediah. It's actually outrageous. Um, Jedediah, thank you so much for being... Can I call him Jed now? I'm going with Jed. That's where I feel we're at. Jed... Thank you so much for being so generous with your story. You can see why I absolutely love him, can't you? And do take the Enneagram personality test we were talking about. It's completely fascinating. And also come find us at Happy Place Official and tell us what you liked about that episode. Jedediah's first book, which literally gives me goosebumps thinking about it, To Shake the Sleeping Self, as I said, is the book I love gifting other people the most. And I can confirm it's very well received. His second book, like Streams to the Ocean, is utterly gorgeous too, and it's out now. Do make sure you hit that subscribe button so you're back here the same time, same place next week. In the meantime, thank you so much, Jedediah. Thank you to the producer, Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio. And, but of course, you for listening. You're legends. Love ya. See you soon. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.